said Lord Byron, always laugh when you can. It's cheap medicine. But many Christians either miss or minimize humor. And with all that's going on in the world, a war in Ukraine, a war in the Middle East, is humor even an appropriate subject? What does the Bible say? What do you say? We sit down and talk with a, a biblical expert on this subject of humor. We'll do it and a whole lot more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Geiger. Our host is noted Old Testament scholar, Middle East expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, many of us, as we look at the conflict unfolding right now, are wondering what the future holds for Israel. While some things are certain, the Bible gives us an outline of what really will happen in the last days. Our friends at Life and Messiah recently posted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the Church Living in the Last Days. They're now making the video of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me, Charlie Dyer. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. And now a look at current events from the Middle East. Last weekend, Israel began its long-awaited invasion of Gaza. What do we know so far about the battle, and has there been any additional information on the hostages that are on everybody's minds? Well, and let me start with those hostages. Hamas has released four hostages, and Israeli troops rescued a fifth. Negotiations for the release of other hostages is ongoing, and Israel is also searching for those hostages as they make their way through Gaza. As far as the battle itself is going, it appears that Israel's initial goal on the ground is to slice Gaza in half, sending in tanks and soldiers to cut the two main north-south links in the area. Now they're engaged in heavy urban fighting and experiencing the trauma of still more deaths. They've bombed over 11,000 Hamas targets since the start of the war. Uh, Meanwhile, Hamas and Islamic Jihad continue to fire rockets at the towns and cities in central and southern Israel. Hamas was hoping Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, and even possibly Iran would actively engage in the fighting. But so far, that hasn't happened. Hezbollah's fired anti-tank rockets across the border, but at least up to now, they've held back on using their thousands of long-range rockets. They've done just enough to claim they support Hamas, but are apparently trying to keep the conflict from escalating. Whether this will continue, though, well, that remains to be seen. But their response, at least up till now, has frustrated Hamas. The Houthis have launched several drones and rockets at Israel from their bases in Yemen, but all have been shot down by U.S. warships or by Israeli planes or the Aero missile system. No Houthi missiles or drones have penetrated Israel. Iran hasn't joined the fight, though its allies in Iraq and Syria have launched missiles and drones at U.S. bases in Syria. As you might expect, the flow of information from the battle is sparse. Israel doesn't want to telegraph its plans to Hamas, but they appear to be moving deliberately and methodically to cut off all avenues of resupply and escape for Hamas while they move house to house in heavy urban fighting. One last point. The economic impact of this war on Israel thus far is staggering. It's costing Israel $250 million a day with no end in sight. And the cost to those living in Gaza is incalculable. The impact is going to be felt long into next year. Charlie, your comment about rockets still being fired from Gaza, 
are Israeli sources able to then pinpoint the sources of those and go after them, or is it all mobile and therefore unable to be pursued? I think a lot of them are underground uh, sources, and they open up fire and then try and close it up. Israel tries to spot them. Also, the problem is they're in urban areas, and when Israel goes after them, they have to be very careful that they don't uh, inadvertently attack and hit the wrong target and hit civilians. The United Nations General Assembly overwhelmingly voted for a ceasefire, but without including any condemnation of Hamas over the initial attack. And some world leaders are suggesting Israel's air and ground campaign and ensuing civilian casualties have been disproportionate, violate the laws of war, and could be war crimes. What are the issues here, Charlie? Well, the issues are that there's so many different Muslim countries that supported that resolution. There were groups joining Israel and opposing, but of course they're overwhelmed. Now, thankfully, it's a non-binding resolution. Now, people using those terms, though, you know, disproportionate, violating the law of war, war crimes, uh, they're using them in improper and misleading ways. Uh, The laws of armed conflict are governed by the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and some other protocols, and Israel subscribes to and follows those laws. You know, when you think about war crimes, it was Hamas that deliberately targeted civilians on October 7. They raped, tortured, mutilated, burned alive many of those they killed. They took civilians as hostages. Now, those are war crimes. Israel is very deliberately seeking to bomb only military targets. But under the laws of armed combat, those targets may include residential buildings if they're being used by Hamas for military purposes. That's why Israel has repeatedly urged civilians to leave the area. Israel's trying to avoid civilian casualties. It's Hamas that's using the civilians as human shields. And the principle of proportionality that you'll often hear and that's often thrown about, well, that doesn't mean you compare body counts or the number of damaged buildings to see if they're even. What it means is that an attack is considered disproportionate and illegal if the collateral damage to civilians and buildings is excessive compared to the military advantage of the attack. In other words, bombing an entire apartment building to take out a single Hamas fighter who ran inside for cover, that would be disproportionate and illegal. But bombing a building that houses a key Hamas commander or a command center or weapons facility, that would not be considered disproportionate, even if it causes civilian casualties. Israel's doing everything possible to avoid civilian casualties, but they are seeking to eliminate Hamas and its leadership. Hamas started the conflict when they launched their attack on October 7, and Israel has the right to respond militarily to defeat them. War, as we both know, is bloody and brutal. Israel's trying to fight a vicious enemy while following all the laws of armed conflict. And those suggesting otherwise, including politicians and protesters, are either naive, deluded, or or just plain anti-Semitic. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger looking at current events. Well, Israel announced plans to test its iron beam laser system on Hamas missiles. How does the iron beam system work, and can it effectively stop those missiles? Well, the iron beam generates a laser beam to destroy airborne targets. Uh, The laser shoots a beam of energy at a target, instantly hitting it and hopefully destroying it. And it can aim and fire at a very rapid rate. There are some unknowns right now, including the iron beam's effective range. Estimates have ranged from 4 to 10 miles, depending in large measure on the power level of the laser, which, as you might expect, is being deliberately kept vague. It's also unclear how the iron beam's performance will be impacted by weather conditions like clouds or rain or smoke or dust. 
what we do know is that Israel has officially announced plans to test the system on missiles now being fired from Gaza. Uh, Some reports, including some so-called videos, have appeared supposedly showing the system in use for the past two weeks. Those reports are false. Uh, They're examples of fake news capturing headlines. What does seem to be true, though, is that Israel wants to test the system against missiles currently being fired by Hamas. It's also likely Israel won't issue any updates on its use until they know its effectiveness. Now, in regard to another of Israel's high-tech systems, they did announce Wednesday they used their aero defense system to intercept a surface-to-surface missile launched from Yemen. That was the first use of the system in actual combat, and it worked as advertised. They're hoping that they'll be able to say the same thing before too long when it comes to the iron beam system. But as of right now, no news. Well, Charlie, as you already said, one of the casualties of the current conflict is truth itself. Fake news, false claims all seem to abound. How serious is the problem and what can be done to help sort out the truth from those things that are false? Yeah, that Iron Beam story is just one example of fake news. A far greater concern to Israel right now are the stories that are designed to turn public opinion against Israel and to stir up anti-Semitism. You know, when Hamas reported that Israel bombed a hospital, killing over 500 patients, the news was uncritically picked up by news outlets. Days later, it was shown to be an Islamic Jihad rocket, not an Israeli bomb, which misfired and landed in the parking lot, not on the hospital itself and that somewhere around 50 to 100 people were killed, not 500 or more. That obviously false story ignited worldwide anger and criticism of Israel. The best way to combat fake news like that is with the truth. And that's why a group of volunteers in Israel have begun a new initiative that they've called the Digital Iron Dome. As the name suggests, their goal is to shoot down fake news reports by exposing them. Now, the site is in Hebrew, but here's how it works. If anyone spots a story they believe to be fake or malicious, they can paste a link to that story on the Digital Iron Dome website. Volunteers then check the link, and if it does appear to be false, they report it to the appropriate social media network to have them take it down. Now, that's a great idea, because ultimately, the best defense against fake news is the truth. And John, if I could end this section with just one other thing. Someone posted online, and I thought it was great. They said, if you want to know how you would have responded during the Holocaust, check your response to Israel and the Jewish people today. And it's amazing. We're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. We're seeing a large amount of apathy. But thankfully, though, we're seeing some who are actively trying to help. Wow, that is a chilling thought, Charlie, to equate what we're seeing today with what happened to the Jews back in World War II. All right, lots to pray about, and we hope you'll pray for the peace of Jerusalem throughout the week. Coming up, a conversation about humor, biblical humor, and how you and I can make sure we're on the right side of humor. All ahead on The Land and the Book. Said Lord Byron, always laugh when you can. It's cheap medicine. From there to here, from here to there, funny things are everywhere, said Dr. Seuss. But many Christians either miss or minimize humor. What does the Bible say? And what if I told you there's a 488-page book full of Bible-related humor? Get ready to laugh next on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to segment two. I'm John Geiger. Here's a quick idea, first, for reaching out to your Jewish friend with the love of Christ. 
You ever wonder what Jewish people believe happens when we die? Wes Tabor is with Life in Messiah. What, what are the thoughts there, Wes? Well, as with so many questions about Jewish belief, there's no single answer. Jewish secular materialists, like their Gentile counterparts, don't believe we're spiritual beings. There's no soul that lives on, in their view. Somewhere in the Middle Ages, the idea of Gilgul Nefesh, the transmigration of souls, developed. It's a kind of reincarnation. Religious Jews who study Kabbalah may hold this view even today. But for most Jewish people, likely including your neighbor or coworker, the idea of the afterlife is not very clear. They may assent to a Gan Eden, an unidentified Edenic paradise in the future, but resist the idea of an eternal hell. Okay, Wes, how does all this help us, though, as we're trying to evangelize? Well, we can ask, if it were possible to know what God has planned for us in the afterlife, would you be interested? Hmm. And we begin with the idea of resurrection in the Old Testament. Job 19.25, Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, Isaiah 16, 19 and 20, Daniel 12, 2 and 3. And then, of course, we point to Yeshua, who is the resurrection and the life, John 11. Boy, those are great scriptures, great points, and we say thank you to Wes Tabor, who's with Life in Messiah. Proverbs 15, verse 15 declares, He that is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Well, Stephen Bramer takes that verse quite literally. I'd say seriously, but that would be missing the point, to the point that he's created the Bible Reader's Joke Book. Imagine 488 pages of Bible-related humor, all tied to Scripture, as I say. Dr. Bramer is department chair and professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. He serves as an adjunct professor for Word of Life Bible Institute, Hungary and New York, Briarcrest Seminary, Canada, as well as at the Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in Jordan. Stephen is a teaching pastor at Waterbrook Bible Fellowship and travels yearly to Israel and Jordan. Thanks for linking up with us today on The Land and the Book, Stephen. It's great to be here, John. Well, let me ask you, why are so many of us a bit skittish when it comes to humor? It's as if we're secretly afraid God doesn't approve of laughter. Yeah, you know, I think that when we come to the Scripture, of course, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it contains really serious material, uh, life and death material, and therefore uh, many Christians, when they come to that, just feel somehow it might be blasphemous or, or certainly inappropriate to joke about anything that would be contained in such a book. Well, how did you go about collecting and collating your jokes? There are a lot of them. Uh, what sources did you use, and how did you go about assembling it? You know, when I was teaching up at Briarcrest uh, Bible College in Saskatchewan, Canada, first a uh, full-time teaching job, and, and I began to tell some jokes to some of the 18-year-olds that I had collected as a youth pastor, and, and I started writing them down in the side of my notes, and I just began to realize that it often would break down a barrier. You know, a, an 18-year-old is coming into an academic Bible class, and, and uh, you know, here's a person with master's or doctorate degrees, and they they're kind of little. And so by the time I would tell a, a few jokes, especially ones that were appropriate or connected with the material, uh, the barriers often would come down. And uh, so I just began to collect those. And I've looked at, you know, places online. I've heard people speak. So I've just been collecting them. It's certainly not that I've written these 2,000 plus uh, jokes and humor stories, but I've just been collecting them over my years of ministry. 
It's the Land and the Book, Segment 2. I'm John Geiger, joined today by Stephen Bramer, Department Chair and Professor of Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. Let me ask you for a couple of favorite jokes of yours from the book. What would you go to? You know, there's some wonderful jokes about uh, Moses crossing the Red Sea, and I kind of like one of them where Moses is leading the children of Israel as they flee from the Egyptians, and when they come to the Red Sea, Moses begs God to rescue his people. Suddenly heard a voice from on high saying, there's some good news and some bad news. I hear you, Lord, said Moses. Tell your servant everything. The good news, said the voice from on high, is that I will part the sea so that you and your people can escape. And the bad news, asked Moses, God says you'll have to fire the environmental impact statement. <laughs> and so in our world today, with that being such a, a problem in so many places, uh, I've enjoyed that. I also enjoy the... the uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I think it is, you know, as a church is trying to make everything biblical within their new church building, they, one deacon suggested they place the text of 1 Corinthians 15, 51 over their nursery door. That reads in the King James Version, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> and if you've ever been to a nursery, you realize they're not all sleeping, they're not all changed. But here's a verse really taken out of context, of course, but a little bit of a humorous uh, uh, message to it. Let me ask you, Dr. Bramer, how have you seen the power of humor at work in others? Any personal stories or observations? You've mentioned these students, how that began to take down walls, but any other recollections of reactions that uh, come to mind as humor is being used? You know, there have been a number of times when I've been speaking to someone who is, is certainly not a believer or even a believer, but really skeptical about some things. And once again, I think humor just breaks down that barrier. It makes uh, me as a person, if I tell a joke, especially if it's somewhat self-depreciating or something like that, it just makes me a little more available to the people. When I'm flying in airplanes, I try and commit myself to talking to the person beside me if I can engage in a spiritual conversation. And often when they've asked me and they find out I'm a professor, you can feel them pull back. But if I can use some humor, now you've got to be careful because, uh, you know, you can offend people with humor if you're not careful. You know, humor's kind of got a double-edged sword. It, it can both be used in a very positive way, and if you happen to use it inappropriately or perhaps uh, you don't understand the person's culture or hurt them in the background, so you right. could be used poorly, and so you need to be careful. Well, when it comes to church, much of the evangelical world seems to be kind of locked into a preaching model that says, well, a, uh, a joke in the sermon introduction is good, but no humor beyond that now. Why are we so committed to that model? <laughs> yeah, I, I think once again, it's, it's when we start talking seriously, it's like we, we, we can't bring up humor lest we put down uh, the truth that we're talking about. But it seems to me that it just allows people actually to open up themselves to truth. I was reading something a, a number of years ago where, you know, people will only sit quietly for so many minutes. I think it was seven minutes. And then they've got to move or they've got to do something. And by injecting a humorous illustration, uh, just a, a throwaway line that's got some humor, in it, it allows people in the pew to kind of shift and to laugh a little bit. And I think then they're ready to engage again. We just can't be serious for 30 minutes in a, in a deep conversation. And it's a one-way conversation, uh, usually from the pulpit. 
pulpit. So this this allows there to be those breaks throughout the message. I, I think it's helpful. I, I find people respond to that. And um, of course, when I'm preaching at a new place, I'm careful because they don't know me and they don't know my personality. And therefore, I would use less humor when I'm first starting off with a group of people. Whereas when I'm preaching at my home church, they know me. I know them. They're not going to be offended if I say something that, that I didn't know what was offensive or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you joined us midstream, Stephen Bramer has compiled the book, The Bible Reader's Joke Book. I'm John Geiger. Glad to have your company here on The Land and the Book. I think we often read Scripture with humorless eyes. And one reason we might be missing some of the humor in Scripture is our disconnect from the culture of that time. Take us to a humorous moment in Scripture that maybe we have overlooked or underestimated. You know, I, I think when, when Jesus is talking to his people, he sometimes uses uh, hyperbole. You know, he, he talks about, you know, uh, straining out gnats and swallowing camels. And perhaps, you know, we, we wouldn't say it that way. But here are these hypocrites who are concerned about the small things. And, and he talks about, you know, a, a rich man, the impossibility of a rich man, that is one trusting in his riches as a sign that he's right with God. He said, that's impossible. It's like trying to put a, a camel through the eye of a needle. And I always say to people, and it's that second hump of the camel that gets stuck in the needle. You know? and, and, and here are people, and they try and explain it away. They try and explain that there's a little door through a gate that's called the eye of the needle, which was first brought up in the 13th century AD, I believe. So it was not back then. And so not understanding the culture, we might not understand mm-hmm. it. So hyperbole in making mention of animals and items back in that time, we need to understand that to really get the humor. Proverbs 15, 13 says, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. Let me ask, what one change could we make today that would give us a more cheerful face, whether we're in the pulpit or in the pew? Well, you and I know that in this day and age, people tend to be angry. (laughs) People tend to have no patience with each other. And it seems to me that we as believers are the ones who need to lead the way to say, look, life is enjoyable. Life is fun. Yes, there are difficult times and we don't make fun of those. But but having some jokes and sharing them uh, just gives a a levity to life and realize, look, yes, life is serious, but the Lord wants us to enjoy life. And my father passed away during... COVID here, whenever I would meet him, he'd have a little joke for me, and it was just always enjoyable, and mm-hmm. and it just put our relationship into that level where we could talk, and it often would lead then to, to more serious conversations, but, but it let us both know that we were human. God created humor. He, he created us. Part of being human, I believe, is to have that sense of uh, humor as we uh, talk with each other and as we see things. I'm sure that Balaam, uh, when he his donkey turned around and talked to him. <laughs> he was probably pretty shocked and everything. But I'm sure later on when he was telling the story, he must have had a little chuckle in his voice. I bet he did. Hey, one thing has always bothered me, Dr. Bramer. Let me ask this of you. We're assured that there's humor in Scripture, but unless I'm missing something, I never see a reference to God laughing at a harmless joke or incident. We do see him laughing at the wicked, laughing at the judgment that comes with evil people. A part of me wishes I saw other evidences of laughter in the Bible. Can you please counsel me? 
I'm not sure I've got a great answer. I've read a number of theology books, and I've never seen God's laughter uh, listed as one of his immutable characteristics. <laughs> but it seems to me that if he created us, and he created us with the ability both to say humorous things, to appreciate humorous things, um, when we get to the new heaven and new earth and we see the Lord God and the Son, I just wonder sometimes if we wouldn't see an enjoyment, maybe not a joke, kind of a, a one-line, a, a zinger. <laughs> Uh, but enjoying, uh, you know, when when the Lord was making those elephants or hippopotamus, I wonder if his heavenly father just didn't smile a little bit when he saw how he was designing this animal. So we don't have jokes in the scripture from God, but I do think, uh, you know, he leads his people. When he said to Elijah, you know, confront the prophets of Baal, and, and on behalf of God, Elijah says to them, well, cry out a little bit louder to Baal because maybe he's sleeping or maybe he's gone on a journey or maybe he's in the, the restroom. You know, surely God inspiring his people shows us a little bit about the heart of God who delights to laugh. Yeah. Plenty of science that says laughter is good for our physical and emotional health. But as we wrap up, what does laughter do for us spiritually? That's a great question. I'm not sure I've ever thought about it, except that I think it does allow us to to look for uh, the enjoyment in life. When you see a group of friends laughing, it doesn't have to be the joke necessarily, but laughing at the things that have occurred to them as they tell their stories, it seems to me that it binds us together and it just gives us an appreciation of the goodness, the fun of this life here on earth. Yes, we go through some difficult times, but I do believe that um, life is to be enjoyed. And as we are in a right relationship with the Lord and a right relationship with our friends, I, I think laughter can actually cause us to grow and to want to be together and uh, want to just enjoy the Lord in this life. The Bible Reader's Joke Book. It's from Dr. Stephen Bramer, Professor of Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. A link to him at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for your smile today. Thank you, John. And we'll look forward to having you on the program again. Charlie's back with a fresh set of Bible questions that I'm looking forward to, and I think you'll enjoy them as well. His answers next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. It's a fascinating segment we're about to embark on. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Fascinating because it's about you, your curiosity, your questions about the Bible, which are always welcome in our inbox. We'll give you that email address uh, in a couple of minutes. Let's start with Deb's question. In the song, Glorify Thy Name, is it theologically correct to sing, Spirit, we love you, we worship and adore you. Glorify your name in all the earth. Didn't the Lord Jesus say that the Holy Spirit would glorify him and also remind the disciples of all he had told them? Yeah, and I actually need to answer this two ways. Yeah, the first, I admit, I do have personal struggles with that song as well in light of the role the Holy Spirit is to play today. In John 15, Jesus described the Holy Spirit as the helper or the counselor, and he said the Holy Spirit's role was to testify about me. And then he became more specific in the next chapter. He says in chapter 16, when the Spirit comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. My concern is that the song seems to actually elevate the Holy Spirit in a way that detracts from his role in the Godhead. 
He proceeded from the Father, and his role was to exalt the person and work of Christ. But now, here's the other side of that coin. Some people react by going the opposite direction. You know, they almost make the Holy Spirit a second-class member of the Trinity. So we do need to remember the Holy Spirit is fully God. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, I love the passage, Peter tells Ananias that he had lied to the Holy Spirit in 5.3. Then in the very next verse, he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. And that's what we need to remember. So in the end, I do want to acknowledge the work each member of the Godhead plays in my salvation. I want to glorify each for what they've done and continue to do. But I do feel uncomfortable, though, addressing each member of the Godhead individually, like the song suggests, as, as if almost their roles are identical. Now, that might be a personal quirk I have, but I don't want to go beyond what God's Word says in describing the role that each member of the Trinity plays in the world today. Judy says, I was wondering, when we die and our souls are in heaven, why does God need our bodies to rise and go to heaven? Well, you know, God originally designed us to be body, soul, and spirit, or, or material and immaterial, and the fall caused us to die spiritually immediately. You know, God said, in the day you eat, you shall surely die. But our bodies are also impacted by the fall, and that's why we also eventually die physically. I think part of God's complete redemption for us involves the need for both our body and our immaterial part to be redeemed. Our soul and spirit are transformed at death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. And we know when Christ will appear that we're going to be like him. But we're still incomplete without the transformed body. So just as Jesus received a glorified body at his resurrection, I think God's plan for us really isn't finished until we receive our glorified body as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about how we groan in this, our earthly body, but how God will clothe us with our new heavenly body. Yeah, I keep thinking about it. A body that never grows old and never wears out, never has physical problems. John, I'm looking forward for that new body. Me too, Charlie. Well, you're listening to The Land of the Book from Moody Radio. Glad to have your company, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. While some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what really will happen in the last days. Yeah, our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference that focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the church living in the last days. They're now making those videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land in the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Edward listens to us on WPEL, and he says, I've got a question about the tabernacle. Where did the Hebrews get the material to build the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness? I think we can answer it two ways. And the first is with the silver, the gold, all the exotic items like the fabrics and even the essential ingredients for the incense. They were likely brought with them out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. You know, following the uh, death of the firstborn in Exodus chapter 12, it says the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. Uh, God placed on the Egyptians the fear of the Israelites, and the Lord made them favorably disposed toward the people, gave them what they asked for. In fact, it says they plundered the Egyptians. So as a result, I believe many of the materials later used to build the tabernacle were actually given to the Israelites by the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. But second, 
I think the people were also able to find some of the items in the wilderness. You know, certainly they could find acacia wood there for the bars and the boards and the, and the carts that they needed. And uh, they were also able to find wild olive trees as well as other desert trees that produce the aromatic spices in the same area. Todd wants to know, are there two types of Christians? It seems I've always heard in Christian teaching a distinction made between faithful and obedient Christians and unfaithful ones. It's expressed in other ways, such as sold out, surrendered, or as living without unconfessed sin. I use this language as well. Is it biblically accurate, or are believers in Christ just more or less faithful to Him? Yeah, I think the best answer might be what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3. You know, Paul described two classes of believers in Corinth. One group, he says, were fleshly or worldly. That's verse 1 there in chapter 3. And the word he uses there has the idea of being under the control of the flesh and having a worldly, self-focused view of life. Paul calls the group infants in Christ. Uh, If you've ever watched the self-centered behavior of a very young child, you get the idea. You know, they want what they want and they pout if their demands aren't met immediately. Well, you have that same idea that Paul's picturing there. In verse 3 then, Paul provides two of the characteristics being demonstrated by such believers. In fact, he says in Corinth, they were exhibiting jealousy and strife. Paul then describes the second group of believers as spiritual, and he pictures individuals who are under the control of the Holy Spirit. We might also refer to them as mature believers. They exhibit a wisdom in how they live that comes from God and comes through His Word and through the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the writer of Hebrews also makes a similar distinction between infants who need milk, uh, the elementary truths of God's Word, he calls it, and the mature who know how to ingest the solid food of God's word and enable them to distinguish good from evil and are able to share that truth with others. He mentions all that in Hebrews chapter Mm 5. So rather than language like sold out, surrendered, or living with with unconfessed sin, uh, which by themselves aren't incorrect, I need to add, I, I just personally prefer categories of immature versus mature or those controlled by the world versus those controlled by God's spirit. And One major difference between the groups is the ability to learn and discern and respond properly to God's Word. A follow-up question by Todd here. Would you equate being a spiritual Christian with being filled with the Spirit, or are those two different ideas? Yeah, I, I do see being a spiritual Christian, as Paul talks about it there in 1 Corinthians, as being slightly different than being filled with the Spirit, which he describes in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians, Paul equates being filled with the Spirit with being controlled by the Spirit, as opposed to being drunk or controlled by wine. I see something similar in Galatians 5, where Paul contrasts the acts produced by our sinful nature in verses 19 to 21 with the acts and attitudes produced by the Spirit's work in our lives in verses 22 and 23. I believe even the newest Christian can choose to be filled with the Spirit in the sense of allowing the Holy Spirit to control his or her life and and submit to that control. But spiritual maturity is a process. It develops over time. Using another analogy, a young child can be obedient, polite, and mature for their age. But that same child still has much to learn and master before he and she can become a full-fledged adult. So every Christian should strive to be led by the Spirit as they seek to know and follow God. But the process of becoming spiritually mature, that takes time as God leads us through all those life experiences that produce obedience and trust and wisdom in our lives. Charlie, your comment about immaturity takes me to granddaughter Ava. We say someday she's six, 
and someday she's 16. <laughs> you never know. All right, let's go to Jim's question. He takes us to Matthew 3, verses 11 through 15, where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And it seems John knew who he was. And then in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, John's in prison and sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the expected one? I thought John knew who he was earlier, and now he's questioning. What's your take? Yeah, actually, I see a real-life uh, illustration in this. You know, John had in his own mind an idea of what should happen once the Messiah showed up. You know, he was going to announce the Messiah's coming, the people would turn to the Messiah, and the kingdom would start. And yet that didn't happen. John's thrown in prison. Uh, so uh, I think what happened then, in answer to your question, I think John was, uh, after being thrown in prison, uh, started having doubts about his own ministry and about the one he had told people was God's son and the Messiah. And so he finally sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he really was the Messiah or perhaps if there was something else or someone else coming. Uh, John didn't see Jesus fulfilling the role of conquering king. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he tells John's disciples to report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor, which he's actually, that's all in Matthew chapter 11. So Jesus is telling them to report specific miracles they had seen him perform and the message they'd heard him preach. And that goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 35, where Isaiah said, uh, when your God comes, those are exactly the things you're going to see. In other words, Jesus tells him to report to John that he's doing exactly what God said the Messiah would do when he arrived. And your question is welcome anytime at the Land and the Book at moody.edu. I'm looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's coming up next here on the Land and the Book. Welcome back to our fourth and final segment here on The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. If you're new, this fourth segment is a devotional. Charlie, I love the way you uh, tie us to not just passages in Scripture, but places in Israel, as you're about to do. Today's devotional, though, is titled Fake News. We're going to look at the, the danger that happened in some fake news biblically after we first hear this testimony from a traveler to Israel who wants to share this with you and me. Hey, uh, Charlie, this is Dave Kahn from Tampa, Florida. Going to Israel was one of the highlights of my life. And I guess probably Capernaum would have been the highlight, although Jerusalem was pretty cool. But Capernaum, just thinking that this is actually, Jesus really walked there. And we went to the uh, synagogue there, and they said it was excavated down to the floor. That would have been the floor when Jesus was there. And to think, I mean, this is not close you know, a lot of the areas that you go to, they say, well, you know, like Jesus was in this area, the Mount of Olives, and, you know, where he was baptized in the Jordan, but they don't know exactly where he was at any of those places. But to kind of see that in the synagogue, this was actually the floor. I mean, this is like where he walked. But anyway, somebody said that going to Israel is like watching television in black and white and then watching it in high def color. Uh, is that, it just brings the Bible really alive, so God bless. Well, fake news is not just a nuisance, and nor is it new. It goes back all the way to Bible times and with extraordinary consequences. But I'll leave the talking to Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. Charlie? Uh, thanks, John. You know, language is always changing. Unfortunately, many of the expressions that find their way into our vocabulary don't necessarily improve it. 
One of the phrases I could personally live without is fake news. You know, sadly, with another national election soon on the way, I suspect we'll have more than our share of fake news over the next 12 months. But politicians today have nothing on Jeroboam, the first king of the divided kingdom of Israel, at least when it comes to fake news. Now follow me to Bethel, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, and I'll explain what I mean. Bethel is the spot where Jacob had his dream of a stairway between earth and heaven, with angels ascending and descending. Because of that dream, Jacob named the place Bethel, House of God, and the site took on great religious significance from that point on. Following Solomon's death, when the kingdom divided into Israel and Judah, Jeroboam headed up the breakaway nation of Israel, and Bethel became one of the strategic religious sites that helped him maintain control over his new empire. One fact we learn about Jeroboam at the start of his reign is that he was the master of fake news. In 1 Kings 12:28, he set up two golden calves, one in the north in Dan, the other in the south of his kingdom at Bethel. He then said to the people, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Fake gods. Then in verse 31, the compiler of Kings notes that Jeroboam appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He had fake priests. And then in verses 32 to 33, the writer reports that Jeroboam instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing. He instituted fake festivals. Let me pause there for a second to explain that last point. God instituted a festival for Israel on the 15th day of the seventh month. It's the festival we know as the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Sukkot. Jeroboam set up his fake festival exactly one month after the one established by God. In fact, the 15th day of Heshvan, the 15th day of the eighth month on the Jewish calendar, was this past Sunday. To give his new fake festival legitimacy in the eyes of the people, King Jeroboam himself went up to the altar to make offerings, claiming the dual roles of both king and priest. In doing so, fake authority. Sadly, the fake news coming out of Bethel isn't over. In 1 Kings 13, God sent a prophet to denounce Jeroboam's actions. Jeroboam stretched out his hand and shouted to the guards to seize him. But as he did, his arm shriveled up. The king pled with the man of God to intercede on his behalf. And in response to that man's prayers, the real God of Israel restored Jeroboam's arm. Jeroboam wanted this prophet of God to stay for a meal, but he refused, saying God had commanded him not to stop in Bethel or eat or drink or even go home the same way he had arrived. As he was leaving Bethel, this man of God paused to rest under a tree. At this point in the story, we're introduced to a second prophet who evidently also worshiped the true God. This older man found the first prophet and said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of God, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But this was fake news because the writer goes on to add, but he was lying to him. Fake gods, fake priests, fake festivals, fake authority, and fake news. What else can go wrong? You don't have to wait too long to find out. God delivered a stern message to the first prophet through the mouth of this less than honorable second prophet. Here's what God told him to say. You have defiled the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where you were told not to eat and drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. But wait, that doesn't seem quite fair, does it? The original man of God was duped by this older prophet, who apparently had been a legitimate prophet in the past. 
So why is God judging the first prophet for getting taken in by the lying words spoken to him by the second prophet? Isn't that rather harsh on God's part? Well, it might seem harsh until you remember it was God himself who originally sent the first prophet to Bethel to announce his judgment. When the king invited the prophet to stay, the prophet's response was, I have been commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. God had given very specific instructions to the prophet, and it's clear the man knew exactly what God had said. So had God reappeared to him to change his original instructions? No, he had not. The older man might have sounded very persuasive, but God had already spoken clearly and directly. And as Numbers 23, 19 makes clear, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Having delivered God's word of judgment to the original prophet, the second prophet apparently tried to make amends. He found the man of God resting under a tree, very possibly exhausted from his journey, his interaction with the king and his lack of food and water. The second prophet, with the fake message, gave his own donkey to the original prophet, perhaps hoping to make his journey home easier. But if that was his hope, the message of judgment God had spoken was going to be fulfilled. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. So what's the moral to this sad story from Bethel in 1 Kings 12 and 13? Well, without being flippant, it might be that listening to fake news can prove to be deadly. God had already spoken clearly, and if a message comes that seems to contradict what God has said, always, always stick with God. How serious is it to ignore God's word and to be taken in by fake news? I'm reminded of two responses to such deception given by the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 1.9, Paul responded to fake news that was circulating regarding the gospel message. There he wrote, As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. God's good news, the gospel, is a matter of literal eternal life and death. And Paul warned against being taken in by so deadly a fake. The second message is from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Evidently, fake news was circulating there regarding the coming day of the Lord. Again, Paul doesn't mince words. He begins by writing, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And then Paul ends his teaching on future events by writing, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. The best defense against fake news is the truth. And that starts with the truth of God's word. The more you know God's word, the more prepared you will be to not fall victim to fake news. And to know God's word, you need to start by reading God's word. So how much time do you spend in the Bible each day? Here's my challenge to you. This next week, spend less time reading or listening to all the fake news online or on television and spend more time studying what God has said in his word. Replace fake news with heavenly truth. Trust me, you will never regret it. Powerful insights there. Thank you, Charlie. What a lesson, a tragic story, but insights for us today. You can hear it all again when you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. 
I want to say thanks to our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Appreciate your company here as you listen to The Land of the Book. We're back next week. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>